Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Kaplan, and I am your host for The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. Once again, we come to you from our studio on the beautiful campus of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Some listeners may have noticed a slight delay in the publishing of this episode. I took a very brief hiatus to reflect on the development and direction of the ephemeral machine, and I've reached a point where I feel satisfied that the components of the podcast are in tune. Recently, I was listening to an episode of the I Dream of Cameras podcast, a high-spirited and entertaining conversation about film photography hosted by Jeff Greenstein and Gabe Sachs. They were reading selections from listener emails and happened upon some correspondence from Lisa Murphy, a camera collector from Ireland who is, by profession, a researcher and archivist. She queried about the voice of women camera collectors, an entity which seemed lacking in representation. In addition, Lisa also presented an approach to camera collecting which is historically grounded and which acquisition was intrinsically linked. Needless to say, I was fascinated. I wanted to learn more about her collection, her perspective on women camera collectors, and how her role as an archivist informs her camera acquisition. When we return, Lisa Murphy, the collector as archivist historian. And we're back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. We continue our journey together, meeting the individuals who call themselves camera collectors, those that celebrate the film camera as an iconic representation of not only the photographic process, but of the design and the history of an industry and a culture. My guest, Lisa Murphy, hails from the east coast of Ireland, not too far from Ireland's capital city of Dublin. Holding university degrees in archives, public history, and ancient history and archaeology, she has spent the past decade working in the fields of heritage and archives. She is currently employed as the Congregational Archivist for the Medical Missionaries of Mary, where she documents and preserves the archives and records of this international missionary congregation of women religious. Her passion for history often spills over into her personal life and ultimately led her to begin her camera collecting journey in 2015. In January of 2021, during the COVID-19 pandemic, she decided to share insights into her hobby through her blog, analogarchivist.com. This personal project combines elements of both collecting and archival work and seeks to inform, assist, and engage with fellow collectors and photographers. Welcome, Lisa, to The Ephemeral Machine, and thanks for joining me for another in our series of Silver Halide Sessions. Well, thanks so much for having me, Michael. Well, uh, Lisa, thanks for joining me. Um, You know, I I appreciate your time, and... um, I'm so glad that we got the opportunity to to meet and are going to have this opportunity to to converse about camera collecting, um, and specifically the way that you approach, uh, you know, the whole 
I, I guess I would call it a hobby, but uh, you certainly approach it in a slightly different way. And what I like to do when I talk to my guests is sort of give us a baseline, and that would be sort of where your interest in photography sort of uh, developed and how that kind of came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose when I think back, um, photography for me was always something that was very much linked to, I guess, like special occasions or big events in our family or going on maybe vacations and things like that. And that was a time where you always kind of remember a camera being there. Um, I have like I have really nice memories of using disposable cameras when we went on our first big vacation outside of Ireland which was like a big deal at the time and the excitement of getting the prints back and you know it was just being able to kind of I guess recapture memories from those vacations and that really stands out so film was still yeah very much in use when I was a kid actually and then I guess for me personally using a camera that didn't kind of maybe happen so much until a little bit later when I think digital kind of point and shoots were very popular. Um, and I definitely like had those in my kind of teenage years and into my early twenties. And they were kind of used, I guess, for snapshot photography and bringing them to concerts and um, things like that. It was probably, I'm going to say maybe I was in my mid twenties before I kind of thought about photography seriously as something that I was interested in. Um, when I got a, secondhand DSLR a Canon DSLR and I used that for a couple of years as I kind of got to grips with learning more about the process of photography and um, kind of advanced on from there got a Nikon DSLR a couple of years later but then it sort of I guess kind of went and fizzled out a little bit with the digital side of things and that's what ultimately led me then into I guess the film photography side of things so um, so so uh, i mean i think that's probably uh, that's a fairly common uh, thread for a lot of people's experience in photography um you know they they entered the photographic process um digitally and um you know there were things about it that are certainly advantageous but um you know there is a, a certain lack of um i don't know what you would call it uh, distinction in terms of the way the process works um, so how did it um, come to be that the the notion of having sort of more than one camera became something that was appealing to you? Yeah, I guess, I guess it's when I kind of go back to that time when I was using the Nikon DSLR and found myself, I guess, a little bit disillusioned with photography as a medium. I kind of... I don't know I like it's I you know I, I don't want to offend somebody by saying that I just got really fed up with maybe the striving for perfectionism in digital photography and the whole idea of maybe post-processing and that so much time seemed to be needed to be spent on that to achieve what I was seeing in photography groups and it just kind of led me to really just I think get really disheartened because I saw that what I was doing just didn't look like what other people were doing and mm -hmm. I kind of I knew kind of friends of a friend who was kind of shooting film and I thought well oh, that's that's quite interesting and I kind of started to look around and found a Olympus OM2 on a local buy and sell website and for a really really cheap price much cheaper than what you get it for now 
and uh, I decided to take a chance on it. And when it arrived, I just thought, wow, this is just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Like it was, it's so different. It just looked so different from the, you know, plastic bodied Nikon SLR. Like it was just totally different aesthetically. And I don't know, it just felt different when I started to use it. And um, I kind of just really enjoyed that process. And I have to say that the photographs I took on that are the worst photographs that I've ever taken in my life. I realized that I knew nothing. I had to start from scratch. Like it really forced me into, I guess, really looking at photography (laughs) and going back to basics, you know, understanding um, exposure and shutter speed and all the kind of technical aspects. I realized that the digital cameras were doing just so much of the work really. And um, it was kind of when I got that camera then and I was looking up kind of information about it and I started kind of delving more into where it fit into the history of photography just because I'm always interested in history and when I was kind of looking at where that fit in terms of where the era that it came from and when I started to go backwards then I was like oh this is this is just really interesting how photography has developed and then I was also really fond of attending flea markets um and there was one particularly up in uh, Dublin our capital city that uh had a stand a guy was selling a lot of um older cameras and that's where I first came across the um old Kodak folding cameras and that was it that was the moment where I just thought this is it and I bought like three cameras from him that that day like three folding cameras not knowing if I'd ever be able to use them or do anything with them but just I loved how they looked and to me it was a sense that I couldn't own a piece of history almost because you know just to look at them you knew that they came from another time they were just completely just different and just beautiful in their in their own way and so from there on then I guess you could say it kind of spiraled as I started to look into those understanding their history and um, where they fit in the history of photography it kind of then was just a thread then that led on and on then to more and more cameras (laughs) from there I was hooked basically well it's an interesting story and um you know I I love the fact that um you know the 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 acquisition of the Olympus prompted you to focus uh, more intensely on the process of photography because you know the digital cameras albeit they're, you know, they're wonderful in what they can do, you know, they have the potential for releasing us a lot of the responsibility of that process. Um, so they yeah, become, definitely. Um, you know, glorified, I hate to say this, you know, I may get some emails, but some uh, glorified point and shoots, depending upon how you use them. Of course, in the hands of the right photographer, there's a lot of control there. Um, but still, um, you know, the notion of film photography, there is an aura that is connected to it. And I think that's something that you were perhaps sensing at that moment. Um, and, you know, one yeah. of the things that we're going to be talking about a little bit later on in this, in this um, chat is that notion of um, the camera as um, an icon. Um, but I'd, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit more about the, um, the direction that you feel like your collection is going in. Um, I know it's kind of hard to say, and certainly the pandemic has kept a lot of people from focusing on certain things, but how do you see your collection growing and, you know, in what terms, what is prompting you to maybe acquire certain cameras? 
Yeah, that is a good question. I think I think the way that I collect has probably definitely changed since I started. Maybe I think I'm what I'm about maybe six or so years now collecting and it definitely has changed over that time maybe the I suppose maybe I've become more deliberate in what I choose in a way um you know initially you kind of have that excitement and you're like oh they're all lovely and they're all beautiful and I want to have an example of everything but I suppose now when I look at it it's kind of for me it's trying to find something that has an interesting story or an interesting background um, or if it is particularly significant in some way in the history of photography or in I guess in history in general you know is it something that's linked to a particular event is it something that was yeah that was kind of revolutionary I guess in a way so I kind of sort of try to narrow in a little bit if I can on that um I mean it's that doesn't always work sometimes I'll just see something that I'm just you know I'm get really taken with um and then I also I suppose aside from the historical aspect I do also have a real love for art deco designs so some of my collecting is based around collecting art deco kind of style cameras um so I do have quite a few that would link in with that so I kind of tend to look out for things in that vein as well but yeah I, I definitely think it's maybe a little more deliberate and I do a lot of research around like I read a lot of books about collecting cameras and and you know it's kind of through the course of maybe my reading I'll come across something that's particularly interesting and at the moment I'm reading a book about cameras that were used in conflict so that's kind of I guess the train of where I'm at at the moment like you know is there something that I don't have in the collection so you know I have a vest pocket Kodak which is very much linked to the first world war but then I realized well there's a little bit of a gap there I'd like something that was maybe representative of what was used during the second world war so that's something that I may be pursuing at the moment so it kind of goes like that a little bit it depends on you know what am I reading what am I looking at what are my what's my particular interests at the moment you know historically I suppose yeah okay um fascinating actually. Um, uh, I think the, the manner in which you approach uh, acquisition is um, really interesting in that, you know, you sort of have it a design in mind. Um, I'd like to kind of um, push this a little bit further. And, you know, once you've kind of entered that, I guess, for lack of a better term, rabbit hole of information, when you're trying to kind of sift through it to figure out what works and what doesn't work, um, okay, so you you come to a place where you realize that there is a particular camera that you really want to acquire for your collection. What's the next step in that in that process? Yeah, so the beginning stage is kind of yeah, obviously the research. If I see something, and I'll start to kind of maybe look at more information, whether that's online or through books or so on. And then I'll start the process, I guess, of actually searching for the camera online through, you know, I guess a good starting point is always eBay to see what's out there, what's the general kind of availability of a camera. Um, and then maybe some of the other online kind of um, dealers or so on to see. Um, and then I guess I kind of try to narrow it down just by, if I can, I like to try and get something that's working. It's not it's it's not an absolute must but if 
I can, that's what I would like is to try and find an example of the camera that is working and that's within my budget. I definitely have to try and set a budget because otherwise, yeah, I could go a little crazy. Like, so, and it is a hobby, so it does have to kind of, uh, I can't go too wild with spending, I suppose. So yeah, it kind of ends up that I just, I'll browse for a while and it could take a while. Like I'm not someone that's that's looking for maybe instant gratification like I'll spend a while searching researching looking for something that fills the criteria um and then when I find it yeah then I'm kind of I'll pull the trigger on it then when I find what I kind of looking for but yeah I mean it's kind of a situation as well I suppose where I'm kind of lucky in the sense that when you have a hobby like this then it makes um gift giving also really good for your significant other so (laughs) I've actually been lucky to be gifted some cameras as well so sometimes it's not just me acquiring them but sometimes he might go and uh, pick out something that he thinks will be of interest or that kind of aligns with my interests as well so that's kind of nice too that's just as an aside another way that I end up acquiring (laughs) very nice sort of an added benefit um that's that's great yeah. <laughs> um yeah obviously budget would be something that you you need to be concerned with and and, and there are cases where uh, uh you know a particular camera is simply out of reach um by virtue of the fact that it's rare or or uh limited in its production or something along those lines yeah. um yeah. and the the you know the idea of the, the 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 non-functioning camera is something that um i i kind of focus on with with a lot of the people that i talk to um because that is a a a, um, a thing. It's a thing that the collectors kind of face, and that is, uh, you know, does every camera in your collection get used? Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, how do you face that notion that you know you may be acquiring something for historical value um, and potentially not be able to use it, um, you know, as a camera? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm okay with that because I think because of how I approach it, because if it's representative of a particular historic event or period that I'm interested in, I'm okay. Like the, again, the vest pocket Kodak, I guess is a good example because when I bought that, I got it reasonably cheaply. They're not, I mean, they're not super expensive. Um, And when it arrived, I mean, the bellows are not in great condition, you know, and I kind of knew I wouldn't be able to shoot with it um for that reason but that's okay because ultimately for me it's what it represents and it's you know that's almost as important as being able to use it I obviously most of my cameras I do like to try and use them when I get them if I can like if it's possible um but it's not an absolute deal breaker if you know I would definitely acquire cameras if they were not functioning and I did actually recently buy a box of cameras at an auction with no idea really if they were fully functioning you know a whole box would you know uh it was I don't I can't remember exactly how many were in there maybe between 10 15 cameras in a box and not knowing for sure taking a chance on it but I think it was worth it because there were some cameras in there that I felt were significant, like a Polaroid SX-70 and a Praktina FX. And there's a Kiev in there too, and um, which definitely isn't working. I know now that that's not. But then the SX-70 did work, which was lovely. And the Praktina does seem to work. So, 
you know, sometimes I will take a leap of faith on something if I think that there's something of interest in there. And look, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It still has a home with me and it's still, you know, it's still valuable in its own way as a representation of, you know, of a model or an era or a development in history or photography. So, yeah. Very interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned such a, a, almost a broad range of cameras. I mean, you're talking about the Kodak Vest Pocket and then you jump to, you know, the Practina FX, um, you know, and there's a, there's a wide time <laughs> period between those cameras yeah. and the manufacturing process. Um, it's for, I think for collectors to look at um, a camera historically and, and in terms of it as an icon, I think a, a lot of collectors look to the earlier cameras as something that it's easier to sort of wrap your head around that notion that it represents something significant in uh, the manufacturing process. Kodak, for instance, became, you know, has such an impact on the way that we understand photography today. But to mention a camera yeah. like the Practina, um, which is, um, you know, polar opposite in terms of its construction and the way that it functions. Um, what about a camera like that appeals to you in terms of its significance? Something along the lines of the uh, of jumping to the 1950s from like the 1920s and the 1930s. Yeah, I think it's just that we can kind of look at a camera like that and because it's one of those cameras that was one of the first SLRs that was kind of fully interchangeable in terms of with its lens and its viewfinder and, um, you know, all those kind of components, you know, it was revolutionary in its own way, in its own time. And I suppose we can look at that then as leading on to some of the other kind of SLRs, I suppose, that became really significant, you know, the Nikons and so on. Um, so I think it's nice to just kind of represent those little moments that kind of, I suppose, sparked something more in the development of photography. You know, I think that's the way I kind of try and look at these things. Like, how does it fit in? Like, what did it do in terms of the development of photography and in, in, the, in development of cameras themselves? You know, looking at how the technology has changed and you can look at a camera like the Practina and say, wow, like it was revolutionary in its time for this reason. And then what it did led on to subsequent developments, you know? So I think from that perspective, it's interesting. And I, I, yeah, I guess it's why I like my collection to be kind of, it is quite broad. It is quite wide. I mean, sometimes I look at it and think it's kind of haphazard, but in other ways, I look at it and see that there are the threads there of why I've chosen certain things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, uh, it's funny because the viewers can't see me sort of nodding my head emphatically uh, in agreement with what you're <laughs> saying. Um, I, I mean, I, I subscribe to uh, some of the same um, ideas and concepts uh, as I built my collection. And, um, you know, as you pinpoint things like the Practina's emphasis on its representation as an early system camera, you know, you it, it, it becomes a compelling reason to have it in your collection as something significant. And I think yeah. that works in, in um, uh, allowing a, co a collection to grow sort of uh, organically. Um, what about, um, you know, where are you in terms of, I, 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 this is just something that I ask um, my guests in terms of the amount of cameras that you own right now. 
Yeah, um, I'm definitely a lot more modest than some of your previous guests. I was very impressed by the size of some people's collections and your own. Um, I'm definitely a lot more modest. So at the moment, I'm kind of in around, um, I think, 44 cameras at the moment in the collection. Although that does, I should say, that includes one Kodak Brownie um, movie camera. <laughs> so I guess it doesn't kind of technically count, but it's part of the collection as well. But uh, yeah, in and around 44 at the moment. So yeah it's um slowed down i guess a little in the pandemic i suppose it slowed down a little bit you know my kind of purchasing and so on as i kind of as i focused on um maybe more developing the blog and working with the cameras that i already had um you know that was kind of a a project that i wanted to do like i had reached a point where i was like wow i've got a lot of cameras and i've got a lot that i haven't you know actually gone out and used yet and kind of wanted to to focus a little bit on that so yeah it's picked up a little bit again um I've kind of started to try and look at other avenues of acquisition outside of maybe just online like I have started to look at more at local auctions and so on I've had friends and so on who've told me about various auctions and that's that's where I kind of acquired some cameras recently so trying to keep an eye out for things like that too so it's kind of picked up a little bit again but it kind of goes through phases I think but it is always growing for sure um there's yeah reaching a point where I'm kind of running out of storage space (laughs) because I'm in a very small house so yeah uh, I, I I can I can see the the direction that things are going, um, and and I think that uh, the amount of cameras that you own um, seems to fit at this point. Um, you know the notion of how you acquire them. So, um, you know uh, many collectors, um, you know, will look for cameras that only function, or they'll. Um, I don't I don't know how important variance is to you, but um, you know, for instance, you know, I'll own a series of cameras. Um, model by model, um, simply because I want that whole series in my collection, and um, so that prompts me to, to make more more uh, purchases more often. And I'm wondering mm. because you set a specific standard for the representation of the camera in your collection, um, is there a, a greater period of time between purchases simply because you're looking for those specific models? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, I would say because sometimes the process of actually sourcing what I'm looking for maybe takes more time um, that I'm not kind of out there every week buying something or I am more, as I say, maybe more deliberate, more cautious now about what I'm trying to add. I wanted to add value to the collection as a whole. So um, yeah, variance isn't something I guess that I have kind of looked at too much I I mean I have a lot of box brownies they're probably the that's probably what I have the most in terms of having lots of different variants of those um again that kind of fits in with the art deco collecting because I've got a bunch that are different art deco faces um so in that way I've got a bit of kind of a bit of variance but no in in kind of terms of other uh, brands are so on not so much I suppose it's more yeah maybe because I'm kind of trying to look for something a little more specific at times yeah it definitely isn't it's I'm not on eBay every night looking for something new kind of thing you know yeah, it's, well <laughs> yeah a little more deliberate you're the, you're the and, exception uh, yes <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I br- look and then that I do browse regularly <laughs> and have to be very kind of hold myself back. But because uh, it could be easy, it could be very easy to go on and say, oh, I'd like this, I'd like that. But um, I guess I'm just at a place where I am trying to be deliberate and see, does this fit into the collection mm-hmm. and does it fit? what I'm looking for kind of, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly. Um, you know, the, the, the role that you play in the, the like, collection development is as important, obviously, as the collection itself. And, um, what I found, um, through speaking to collectors is they approach their collections differently and, you know, they act differently. They function based on certain needs. And, um, I think that's what makes, the interest in the hobby um, so fascinating. Um, let's let's uh, turn a little bit towards the blog, um, Analog Archivist, and uh, I'd like to hear a little bit how that developed and how that informs you know the collection back and forth. Yeah, so I guess that was kind of um, born out of the pandemic and. Um, my fatigue, I guess, with pandemic life. <laughs> um, at that point, I started a, around January 2021. Um, and obviously, I'd been collecting for quite some time, but it never really, it was, a, it was something that I kind of not really spoken a lot about to too many people, I guess. It was kind of something that was for me and like people knew that I'd interest in photography, but maybe not so much in the collecting side. And I was sitting there and kind of thought, God, you know, I'm really a bit fed up now (laughs) with, you know, COVID and everything and the restrictions. At that time in Ireland, the the restrictions were pretty strict. We could only go maybe five kilometers from our homes. And so in terms of my actual photography, I felt that my creativity had taken kind of a big hit and I wasn't as kind of likely to go out and shoot. Um, And I needed, I I realized I just, I needed a reason. I needed a reason to get out there and the collection was sitting around me and I looked at it and said you know what like I've got these cameras and I'm interested in their in their history I'm interested in where they came from what they mean to me maybe I can share that you know and it's really a personal project I mean I didn't set out I mean god if one person read it I'd be happy (laughs) like but at the end of the day it's really for me it's for me to kind of a project that I can delve into the historic research side of the camera and that I can have an excuse to get out there and use the camera. Um, And that's kind of really where it stemmed from. So yeah, it just, it gave me kind of a spark of creativity again, I think during that time and it has kind of continued on. And I I definitely, I felt a little bit better after I had listened to your episode with um, Theo Panagopoulos um, when he talked about maybe not, updating his blog so often um because he likes to spend time with the camera and I definitely felt better because I think nowadays there's maybe a a drive for this kind of constant content online and on social media but I kind of was glad to hear of someone else who liked to take their time so like yeah there's not like a huge amount of posts up there but each one has taken a lot of time and effort you know when I look at putting in the research and when I put in the time to go out and use the camera and spend time with it. So yeah, it was nice to hear of someone else who kind of was using a similar process, I suppose. And I mean, look, some stuff I put up there, it's not 
maybe super new information or super revolutionary, but it's it's my perspective. And I thought there's no harm in having maybe another voice there. Um, just, you know, and as I say, like, it's, it's, it's really for me. And if other people get something interesting out of it, then that's amazing, you know? Yeah, uh, um, this is, uh, you know, really interesting um, that you speak about the development of the blog. Um, you know, there are, there are um, ranges uh, when we talk about uh, a blog that specifically addresses photography. And, um, you know, if you look at something like Theo's blog, Photo Thinking, um, yeah, he takes his time. He spends several weeks with a camera, which is probably why it updates us fairly infrequently. But when it does, the content is intense and comprehensive mm-hmm. um as is yeah. i think you take a similar approach um if you look at a blog like um hamish gill's 35 mmc that that is content based from contributors so it's going to update obviously daily um and the approach is different yeah um and what's really interesting to me is that your approach to your blog i think mirrors your um your, your, your job as an archivist because, because of the role of the blog is to simply record your thoughts, your ideas, your passion, uh, your, your, your interests. Um, and it isn't so much for the public to read, but as a way of capturing, you know, the intensity of what you're thinking about at that time, much like what you mm-hmm. uncover in your research. So that somebody who perhaps drafts an article or a bit of research about a specific thing may not be necessarily for public viewing, but just for record. So I think what's, yeah. what, what I'm seeing here is the blog is becoming sort of your, your own kind of archival representation of the cameras that are part of your collection. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I would agree with that yeah because it was something that I set out to do just for myself and to kind of build that record of what I have here and what it represents and yeah I think I think that's a really interesting take on it and I I would agree with it definitely yeah well how does your um let's let's talk about your 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 role as an archivist um which is comprehensive and and very specific. Um, how does that form the um, your focus in terms of uh, your approach to camera collecting? I know we spoke about it in terms of earlier about how you look at things representationally, historically, things like that. Um, and we're going to get to this very fascinating issue of provenance in a minute um, that I, I want to talk about. <laughs> but how does that notion of being an archivist being a researcher um lead you to uh, make some choices in your collection yeah i think it is very linked to the issue of provenance or the concept i suppose not the issue but the concept of provenance with that being such a huge component I suppose of archival work um kind of context and provenance and custodial history you know they're important things in my day-to-day work and I I suppose as well just uh, on another side of that as well as that to be an archivist is to kind of well for me I know that one of the reasons why I fell into it is that love of history and that kind of wanting to 
tangibly work with history. You know, when I undertook my undergraduate degree and my first master's degree, which were both history based, you know, people assumed I'd maybe go and become a history teacher. But I kind of knew that that wasn't going to be for me, that for me, I wanted to actually work with historic documents or artifacts in some way, shape or form. And I think it's because I'm always seeking that connection to the past and to be an archivist is to really be able to to make that connection with the past and make that accessible to other people. And so I guess that's kind of links in a little bit almost with the blog too, that, you know, I'm looking at a camera, I'm doing the research and then kind of making that accessible as well to other people, whether anyone reads it or they don't read it, but it is out there then as a, as you say, as a record. And then, yeah, the provenance side of things, having an interest in something's background or story, where it has come from, that's definitely one of the things that has kind of informed the collecting process. And yeah, I think probably my most recent blog is the the best example of that. So and we're, we're going to talk about that in, um, yeah. in just a minute. Um, but this notion of um, the the role of the archivist in terms of camera collecting is so interesting to me. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to to speak with uh, Vladislav Kern from USSR mm. Photo, um, and, and I referred to him as an archivist. Um, and uh, he, we and I ta- he and I talked about that, and it was mostly because yeah. of the fact that he was so much about collecting the, the variants of a, of, a, of a camera so that it becomes a record of its function and its existence. And um, I found that that was sort of profound in his approach because it really had nothing to do with, you know, how the camera worked or if, if he actually used it, which he, most of the time he doesn't, but simply mm-hmm. for the fact that it represents a specific element in, in, in part of the manufacturing process. And, um, I think that that extends to the notion that the cameras that you choose for your collection um, have a particular function historically and in terms of design. And, um, you know, I think that your role as an archivist sort of speaks to that. And I, I, it's it's really, really so interesting. Um, mm. Let's let's turn to um, to provenance now because we sort of have landed in this sort of area here. And your most recent um, uh, blog post, which was, uh, and uh, f- forgive me, the camera was a, a Kodak um, Retina, early Retina. Retina, yeah. Okay, so yeah. so um, how, how did you obtain this camera? Yeah, so this um, was kind of one of those ones that I was like, I feel... I sort of feel maybe this camera was meant to come to me in a way, but I was searching for a retina and, or I wanted an early Kodak retina because of their, you know, their, their history as being one of the first kind of um, cameras to use the new daylight loading 35 millimeter cassettes. Um, So within, you know, Kodak history, it's that they're, you know, they're so, they're so interesting and um, I'd kind of had it on my list as something I wanted to acquire. So when I was doing my research around those cameras, I was looking and realized that the actual 
second model that was made the 118 so first was 117 and I actually found myself that I found myself searching for a 118 and that was because when I read about the history it was the camera that Sir Edmund Hillary used when he first summited Everest and so in my mind I just thought well that's just such a cool story you know I was like wow yeah that's a really that's just interesting it's an interesting kind of piece of information associated with that camera that's kind of not just solely based on why the camera was made but it's something added it's an added extra I guess so then I began the search I was kind of looking for see could I find one I looked on some local sites and I had almost almost bought one on a local site and then I didn't and eventually then came across a listing on eBay and uh for found a model that was serviced the gentleman had proof of that it had been CLA'd and everything and he had used it and I thought oh that's that's great it means I can actually get out there and use it and when I kind of looked at the images that he had for that camera it, it came with a case and inside the lid of the case there is like a little leather patch which is embossed with the name um, wing commander PR casement and so straight away I was like oh this has an interesting story to tell this has a provenance um did it, I kind of did a quick google search of the gentleman and realized that he had been in the RAF the Royal Air Force and thought oh wow there needs to be a little bit of information out there on him so I went ahead anyway and I got the camera it was it's probably one of the few that I've bought that was probably a little bit outside of the budget I'd set for myself, but I kind of figured it was worth it because for the interesting, for the potentially interesting story, I didn't really know anything about the gentleman at the time when I bought it. Um, and it was, once it arrived then, um, it's been kind of over the last, I probably actually bought it about a year ago. And I have spent time on and off over the past year looking into this gentleman. Um, his name's Peter Reginald Casement. And so I've spent um, time kind of looking into his story, trying to find out more about him and um, knew that it would form like a, an interesting, an interesting blog post as well. Um, and I just think it just adds a whole other element of interest to the camera itself. You know, the fact that he was quite an um, extraordinary individual, um, having served in the Second World War. And this, his back, his story, basically, the interesting part of the story is that he flew um, a Lancaster plane during the Battle of the Atlantic. And this he, he was the first to bring back photographic evidence of a U-boat being sunk. So he's linked to photography in such an interesting way and I just you know the further I delved into it I just thought this is just fascinating you know from from me being a history geek as well you know as well as photography I just thought wow everything has really interconnected in this story you know um so yeah just hugely hugely fascinating amazing uh, I mean when I read the post um because obviously I wanted to, to stay connected with what you were um, involved with. And I saw the, the, the post for the camera and I began to look at it and it was a pretty traditional review of the camera's function and things like that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that is, yeah. that is probably the most common approach to how collectors look at their cameras. You know, when they speak about them, they talk about them in terms of their use. 
Um, and the notion of, of history breaks off in a lot of different directions. Um, and, you know, if you look at somebody like uh, Mike Ekman um, and his, his mm. blog, um, his, his reviews are built around, they are um, historically centered. And it's yeah. about the manufacturing and things like that. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's comprehensive. It's amazing. And if you really want to know about anything about a camera, that's where you turn. Oh to. yeah. I mean, it's often one of my first stops, you know, he's, his work is superb. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. He's a, he's a great guy and, and his work is really intense. And um, sometimes I'm stunned at what he can uncover uh, to tell you the truth. Um but as I as I scrolled down your post and we we reached this point where suddenly we were talking about another aspect of this camera's history, you know, I was completely enthralled. Um, and here we have <laughs> this notion that this camera was owned by um, this uh, this gentleman Peter Reginald Casement, and and his role and the use of the camera in his life and how it functioned and it sort of just grew mm. and grew and grew and suddenly you know the camera represented something other than just its function which is something yeah. that i i i am constantly pushing you know in my podcast yeah. in my writing and things like that and it is it is an arduous task i feel to to separate the camera from the photographic process and 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 i think that in in the in the way that you constructed the the blog and the provenance of this camera you have effectively been able to do that um so that the camera reaches another level of representation as a historical artifact mm -hmm. so so this is this is fascinating to me so just an arbitrary purchase of this camera it just happened to be the one that was owned by this this gentleman <laughs> is is stunning and the fact yeah. that it took you in this path and you know this is something that you know i've encountered before um and it, it, in a very very much less significant way but um soviet cameras uh many times were given as gifts and um because of that they were inscribed so, you know, uh, several cameras in my collection and several cameras in several collectors' collections uh, are inscribed, you know, from this person to this person. And usually you have to post the inscription and get it translated very quickly. Um, but suddenly there's a name connected to the camera. Yeah. And, you know, some people have traveled down that path to kind of see where it leads. And it, there's been some interesting yeah. revelation in terms of who owns these cameras and who passes them on. And I think that, you know, you can't always count on that, but, you know, occasionally I do get a camera and I look in the case and there's the guy's name who owned it. And you have to wonder, you know, what was, what's the story behind this? Yeah. I think that's what really fascinates me. It's a, it gives the camera a whole other life. You know, it's come, the camera came to me now, but it had a whole life before I ever had it. And the person who owned it had, in this instance, a very incredible and interesting life. And it's the same thing for me with cameras that were gifted to me by loved ones. So for even something as simple as my Kodak box brownie, um, one of the ones I have, a Model D, 
that was gifted to me by my great aunt, who's still alive. She's almost 90. She lives in the United States as well. And to me, that's equally as special or interesting because it's connected with her, because I know that she owned it and she used it and that, you know, they weren't, they weren't a rich family. And it, again, it tells me that, that Kodak, I guess, was the camera for the ordinary person and this particularly the brownie you know the fact that it did bring snapshot photography to the masses and it made it affordable for people and I see that with that camera I see that this family who didn't have a lot and but they were able to afford a camera um, a box brownie and so it has its own story too and I just I think that's what's interesting so yeah like I would never shy away from if I see a camera and it's got an inscription or it's got something like to me, that's equally as interesting as any other aspect or any technical aspect of the camera. I think that's what drives me. I think I'm not a person, I suppose, that's super interested in technical specs of cameras and I don't collect lenses. It's not what I'm interested in. It, to me, it's trying to get, get something more from it you know it look it's not always there you're not always going to have that story but sometimes you do you know and even I suppose I have a Mamiya Flex Junior as well in the collection that I picked up and when I bought it it was super beat up I mean and it smelled terrible when it arrived like it was horrible most people would probably not even give it a second look but I cleaned it up got it like got it looking better, smelling a lot better. <laughs> and the reason why I bought that camera is because on one of the winding knobs, it says made in occupied Japan. So to me, that tells me something that tells me about that camera. It tells me about a time when that was made and what was happening at that time, what was going on in Japan when this camera was made. And so that story is as much a part of the camera as any of the other kind of technical aspects, I think, you know, so for me, that's a lot of what drives me. If I can find something like that, something, you know, an interesting provenance, an interesting story, you know, that makes it all the more valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's so interesting that you mentioned uh, the, the made in occupied Japan stamp, um, because that is something that sets um, certain cameras apart from others that are of similar uh, construction. And uh, there is something about that, that kind of um, drives this notion of history forward, because it connects it to a very, very specific time mm -hmm. in the manufacturing process. And, and I think, um, you know, when we talk about this notion of connection to history, uh, I can't help but think about um, uh, uh, the collectors who um, uh, receive a camera, acquire a camera, and they find that there's still film in that camera. And, you know, a lot of people process oh. that film. Um, and then suddenly yeah. you have this other level, this ephemeral connection to some history, mm. which is so interesting, because if there's actually images on those on that film, your connection is now visual and yeah. I'm not sure where you would go from there. Um, except for the fact that you now have some visual representation of a moment in history that was part of another person's life. And, you know, it really expands the, the notion of the collection to a, to a certain degree. Um, oh, so absolutely. interesting. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. Let's, um, I, I kind of want to step into a slightly different area. 
um, because and this is this is interesting because it it prompted our connection, uh, and that <laughs> is um, I happened to be listening to a, a recent episode of I Dream of Cameras with Jeff Greenstein and Gabe Sachs, and I heard your letter that you wrote to them, um, and basically you um, specifically addressed the notion of historical artifact and um, archival research and things like that, but you also addressed this notion that. Um, you wondered if there were more um, women camera collectors. Uh, and mm. I was fascinated by your question, which prompted me to connect with you because I wanted to hear more about your perspective on that. So I'm kind of um, asking you um, how you feel the the hobby of camera collection um, is representational of a specific gender, or is it something that you think is becoming more sort of universal? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose um well firstly just a shout out to Jeff and Gabe for uh making this happen <laughs> because yes it is thanks to them that this has happened. Um I love I love their podcast. I love what they do. But I was just really curious like since they started their mailbag section of the podcast that everyone who wrote in or seemed to be that everyone who wrote in was male. And it's more just I suppose I, I more so just have a curiosity around it. Like, you know, as a woman, I kind of wondered, am I an anomaly? You know, am I strange? Um, and like, I know that I, I know I'm not the only one. I know you've had um, Danielle Robleski on your show and I know she collects too. But I don't, yeah, personally, like I don't know any other women collectors. And it does seem that traditionally, I suppose it, it seems to be a more male dominated hobby. And I, I mean, I can't really say as to why that is. I mean, we could only kind of, I guess we could only really guess as to why that is the case. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it is, is a curious one. And I guess I, I put it out there because I wanted to know were there more out there? Were there more women out there who collect? Because I would just love to hear their story. And I think, well, I think that's what makes your podcast so interesting is that you're getting to hear the story of how and why somebody has come to this hobby. And I wondered, yeah, are there more women out there? Because I'd love to hear how they came into it, you know, because I'm seeing that it is more traditionally male. And yeah, I have collector friends but they're they are male so <laughs> and you know groups and clubs that they attend are largely male and so it just it's it's just interesting and film photographers out there like we know they're out there using cameras um and taking amazing photographs and we know that there probably needs to be a bit more representation i guess in 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 that and again Danielle has done good work with that as well with her hashtag um the women with film Wednesday I think that's been hugely important but from a collecting perspective I suppose my curiosity remains around are there women out there yeah well I can uh, I, I I didn't yeah, I certainly didn't want to, you know, put you on the spot or anything like that. I was just no. I just think it's a tricky one, isn't yeah. it? It's it's it, it's, <laughs> it's a really a interesting one. question, mm -hmm. and um, it happens that um, you know, based on on um, our conversation and um, 
you know, the, the notion that um, is camera collecting sort of more ecumenical, more, more universal. You know, I, I posted um, and asked mm. if there were uh, women camera collectors, and uh, there are. I, I, I must say, uh, it, it began quite a thread. I'm glad. Of, of um, <laughs> yeah, of of collectors who um, you know have substantial um, uh, collections, um, historically based and uh, you know uh, mm. genre genre based, and um, you know I'm having the opportunity to speak with some of them uh, in the next few weeks, which uh, I'm glad about. But I, I think what what's really interesting is, you know if you try to pinpoint the notion that somehow camera collecting is, is, um, male centric, um, it's probably just due to the fact that, um, it, it's flooded more by, by men than, than women, per, perhaps something along those lines. I mean, camera collecting is a, a, an interesting offshoot of photography. Um, yeah. it is, um, it's very sort of pragmatic and it's in the way that it, that it approaches the development of a collection. Um, you know, it's based on design and interest and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's just the voice isn't heard the way that it is with, uh, men who speak up and, and, um, uh, have this obsession with, you know, what lens works with what camera or, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. And it is. And I think maybe, I, I guess, I, I think you've touched on it maybe a little bit in the sense of, I wonder sometimes, is it that maybe as a woman, I can see that maybe my focus is different. Now, I suppose I am unique in the sense of where I'm approaching it from, like because my background and my interest my profession is largely involved in history and that 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 is my passion so I it, like I'm straight away maybe approaching it from a slightly different mm -hmm. um avenue but is it that women do approach maybe from a slightly different perspective and it's just that's what would I think will be so interesting to to figure out you know how are we looking at it is it that we're not as interested in tech specs although I'm sure there are women out there who are really interested in that thing or obsessed by lenses or specifics or you know things like that but yeah I, I have kind of wondered myself is it kind of down to just a differing perspective on it and is it just that the voice is maybe not amplified in the same way that maybe the that women's photography hasn't isn't is sometimes not as amplified as but particularly if you look at it just through the lens of social media that sometimes it's just the representation isn't as large or something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, and is it just a, that we need to mm -hmm. put it out yeah. there more? Yeah, I think that's a valid observation. Um, you know, I, I, I was happy to see the, the breadth of, of, uh, the, and, and variety of, of collectors who, um, you know, uh, spoke out and said, you know, uh, I have this collection and this is what it looks like. And it, and the thread grew and grew and grew. And it prompted me to actually be able to contact, um, some women and, uh, arrange some, some interviews, uh, in the upcoming weeks, which I'm, I'm really happy about. And I think what we're going to find is a real variable in the approach. Um, depending upon how a person might be connected to collecting, based on, um, you know, the photographic process 
were mm. the historical process. And um, it, it will be interesting to see how this sort of uh, opens up to some some new perspectives. Yeah. Um, but it's no, an, absolutely. It, yeah, it was an, and, and, and so interesting, um, you know, because, yes, uh, you know, when when Jeff and Gabe read their mailbag, you know, it's for the most part men who are writing in and, and asking and saying, you know, giving their their thoughts and their perspective. And, um, you know, it it it, um, it was sort of interesting to see it prompted a response. So uh, I'm glad that we had a chance to, <laughs> to, to chat about that a little bit. Um, let's um, step away from that just for a moment and sort of get back to a little bit more about this sort of pragmatic uh, connection to the to your to your cameras. Um, and we're not going to speak for much longer, but there's a couple of things I do like to ask in terms of how you um, develop the, the collection. Or is there anything that you think of right now that um, would be something you're looking to ascertain, looking to acquire that is sort of out of reach at this point? Is there something that you've sort of said, I really want this for my collection. I just cannot either afford it or can't find it or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I kind of always sort of have a, a short list of, you know, wanted cameras, um, in terms of a camera that I would like that I would like to have even for just for use for photography, I would really love to add a Rolleiflex to the collection because I don't actually have a Rolleiflex and that is due to financial constraints because mm -hmm. they are so expensive, you know, if you want to one of the 2.8 or 3.5 models, you know, they're very, they're very expensive. And I just haven't been able to kind of justify that. I think when I think it's because I have some TLRs that are perfectly functional and, you know, that I use a lot. And, but if I was to add, I would like to add one, you know, they're important again for their, uh, for their, their part in the history, but also just as a camera that I'd love to use um, in terms of adding for, um, other reasons, I think um, I've always really wanted a Kodak Bantam special, mm -hmm. um, which obviously you can't uh, you can't shoot that now, not having the film for it. Um, but it's so beautiful. Um, and I have to say that's from a very aesthetic perspective um, to add into my Art Deco collection. I just think that is up there. Anything by um, Walter Dorwin Teague is just, oh, yeah they are those are like my grail cameras if I could add those for pure aesthetic purposes <laughs> because they're just yeah gorgeous gorgeous mm -hmm. um and then another one that I've kind of um sort of I suppose was interested in was something like the Kodak Super 620 for its role as being the kind of first to offer um fully automatic exposure mm -hmm. but they were made in kind of small numbers and I mean it's it's kind of ugly as well though but it's fascinating um so maybe at some point but again they yeah because they're kind of a more rare they're financially i suppose kind of out of my out of my reach but um they're just a couple that i would have kind of on my list at the moment but it kind of sometimes changes depending on where i'm at or what i'm what i'm kind of looking at at the moment so understood yeah. and yeah the bantam um is certainly something that is worth having in a collection um i can't say that mm -hmm. i own one um, it is, um, something that, uh, I find to be, um, attractive for its design. 
Um, mm. And uh, I, I know that, um, you know, it's it's one of those cameras that um, you know you really have to justify its representation in your in your collection because it's uh, you know you really can't chew with it now, uh, and that's one of those no. cases where you're going to have something that is uh, is there for its look, is there for its aesthetic, is yeah. there for its design. Um, when yeah. you you know we 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 have spent the the past hour talking about collecting and it's not unusual for me to to not actually get around to the process of photography with a lot of the people that I speak with, <laughs> um, but I am curious um, you know what prompts you to choose a certain camera if you decide that you want to go out and and shoot some photography. Yeah. Um... I think it depends on um, my focus at the time, whether it's, um, you know, am I going traveling or am I going, um, like, am I going out with the purpose of photography in mind with taking pictures? Like, because sometimes I might be going out to test a camera for the blog, I suppose. So that will, that will kind of sway me one way if I if I'm deciding okay this is the camera that I want to write a new blog post on um if I'm doing the research around it and I want to bring it out um then I'll choose maybe to bring that if I'm going somewhere um but then when it comes to maybe travel or just my general photography um I have cameras that I go to all the time and that's just because I know they are so reliable um so things like my Yashica 635 is my favorite camera and probably the entirety of the collection just because just even to use just because I, I've used it so much and it is so reliable um so that's always one that will come with me and then if I know that I'm going maybe traveling and it's or it's a short break and I don't want to enough lugging a TLR can be a chore so I might bring something like the Olympus trip um with me for I've that's come on lots of holidays with me so yeah, it kind of, I guess, depends on the circumstance. I definitely have go-to ones that I know mm-hmm. they work. I know that they're reliable and they will get chosen when it's for that kind of purpose of going out with photography in mind. But if it's going out with the blog in mind, then it will be whatever the focus of that is, I suppose. Okay. Um, is the, 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 you mentioned the 635, is that fitted with the 35 millimeter kit or just, do you just shoot 120 with that? Just the 120. Just the yeah, 120. I prefer... I prefer 120 generally. I mean, I have a lot. Oh my God. Like the connection has tons of 35 millimeter in it, but I actually, if I go out to choose to shoot for creative purposes, then it's, um, it's 120 is kind of my, my favorite format. Yeah. I just, I just, I uh, love a square. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, yeah. It's, it's a just, great I camera. I mean, I, I have a, yeah. a, a 635 and I have the, the comparable, um, the, the Yashica D. And, um, mm. you know, I, I got the 635 because I thought, you know, if I could find the, the kit to convert it to, to 35 millimeter, then I'd have a TLR that shoots 35. Um, still haven't found one yet. Um, and maybe I will, and mm. I'll be able to get that camera back into service. Um, the other thing that I, I kind of picked up on from some of your, um, social media content was that you found the the way into half frame photography now. And um, <laughs> I think that was due mostly to Jeff Greenstein's um, presence. Yeah. Um, what has, uh, <laughs> where has that taken you into, uh, in terms of cameras or interest and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So 
I guess that was another avenue that kind of sparked uh, my acquisition was a uh, yeah I dream of cameras it's really hard now actually to listen to that podcast and not go oh I don't have one of those maybe that would be interesting but he spoke just so fondly actually Jeff spoke so fondly of um half frame and I realized that I didn't have a half frame in the collection and thought well why not you know it's I don't have one um and I do I do love Olympus as a brand um and picked up a pen ee2 and i it's funny because i often find it really tedious to shoot a whole roll of 35 millimeter and i think it's because i just because i tend to prefer the 120 and there's less you know we've got less exposures to mm -hmm. work with and it's much more deliberate and i take a lot more time over a roll probably in that but then so when i'm faced with so many exposures on a roll of 35 i can find that a little bit tedious so then so then it was kind of hilarious to kind of go out and buy a camera that then could take 72 images. <laughs> but in saying that, it really sparked creativity in terms of my photography because it kind of just opens up this whole other avenue, I think, of experimentation when you're working with that half frame. And it was just really fun. Um, I actually thought, yeah, it's one of the most fun cameras that I'd used in a really long time. And I was actually really glad that I had picked it up. Now, whether I feel I would add any more half frame to a collection, I don't know. Maybe I think it's one of those that maybe one is enough <laughs> and it works and it does what it's meant to do. Um, but it's been really, really fun. And I, I, I did really enjoy using it. And yeah, it makes the process, I suppose, really simple um, in terms of you don't have to think too much about what you're doing. So a great little snapshot camera. Could see myself bringing it on, you know, a vacation, mm -hmm. I think, as a real, like, just throw it in your bag camera. There's a, the, the history of the half frame camera is something that um, you could easily find yourself waiting around in. Um, and there are many, mm -hmm. many cameras that uh, provoke certainly a sense of historical um, representation. Um, one in particular is the Univex Mercury 2. And I don't know if you're familiar with that camera, but um, no. when, when, we're, when we're finished speaking, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll step over and, and grab mine. And this is something, this is a camera that you probably will want to try and find. Um, oh. <laughs> and... Um, uh, it's half frame and it's design and representation in terms of manufacturing process is really interesting. So we will, um, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, after we, we finish our conversation, I don't want to get out of my chair right now, which is the reason why. <laughs> um, so, uh, the half frame is a, an interesting phenomenon and it does afford you a great deal of flexibility. Um, you feel like you can mm. shoot more, um, you can work with this notion of diptychs, you know, the progression of mm. those two images and things like that. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I have many, many half frames in my collection and it is something that I think, um, you'll probably find your, your, you become really interested in as well. Mm. Um, are there, uh, and we're going to be, um, sort of wrapping this up in, 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 a, in a minute or so, but I, I kind of want to ask you just in terms of, um, I noticed you have your cameras in a, in a, uh, in a sort of display case behind you. Is that typically how you display them or is there some other way that uh, you're working with them right now? Um, so I kind of do a bit of both um, open shelving and um, the cabinet. So the cabinet mm -hmm. behind me that you can see, 
tends to hold my cameras that I consider, I suppose, most valuable. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean valuable in a monetary sense, but a valuable um, even just from what they mean to me, um, that they're important in some way. So they get put behind glass and try and keep the dust and stuff to a minimum. Um, but I do have open shelving as well in the rest of the house um, and in the living room. Uh, and I typically display kind of things like my box brownies on those because they're a little more robust and easier to dust and things if if I need when when I need to do that. So it's kind of a mix of both. And I do like to have them displayed because I think they are so beautiful. It's part of the appeal. Um, so I like to have them displayed out around me. Um, I think in terms of some of the challenges with displaying um, them here and in Ireland in general is that we can suffer like a little bit of, it's kind of tends to be quite damp weather, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've had to invest in lately is um, in having a dehumidifier for the winter months just to kind of combat that kind of really damp weather. It doesn't get like super, super cold here, but it's just very wet. It's And it has been very wet. So just trying to combat that in terms of looking after the collection, trying to make sure we don't have any issue with mold and that kind of stuff can be can be a tricky challenge. So I'm always trying to keep on top of that. Um, but yeah, for the most part, they're fine. And just once I kind of keep on top of any that are out, I try and just keep on top of really regular kind of cleaning and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. But yeah, that's the only thing about when you start to add more and more. It's a lot sure. more cameras to clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to find a place to put them. And um, you know, I'm at I'm at mm -hmm. uh, I'm at a place where um, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with them right now. Um, you know, I, <laughs> that it's just a dilemma. I mean, my wife doesn't think it's a dilemma, but I think it's a dilemma anyway. Um, <laughs> this is a, so so uh, this is kind of going to be our last question and this is something that i ask um when i speak with people and this has to do it reflects on um the rising cost of film and and availability and things like that um and i kind of mm -hmm. figure i know the answer to this question already but um if there were no more film um available for shooting uh, would you still collect cameras and, and like i said i think i know the answer to this question yes yeah, and can you, and categorically, you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I figured there'd be no question um, about it. No, because for me, I suppose because of how it even started, it was not solely for the purpose of shooting with them. That's a That has become a bonus, the fact that I can take so many of them out to use them. And then I have, like, that's, to me, that's a bonus aspect to having them. But if there were no more film and they would still be here. They would still be on the shelf. I would still own them. I think I would still collect them because of what they are. They are, it is a chance for me to have a little piece of history in my home. And that's, that's what I love. And that's what kind of keeps me going. And it's not so much. Yeah. I mean, I'd be sad. I'd be very sad <laughs> if something happened to film because I do enjoy using it now and I've kind of never really gone back to digital. So yeah, but I, I hope it won't happen. And yeah. Hopefully there is a, a long future ahead for film photography, but if there isn't, and if we reach a point someday, I'll still have, I'll still have them. And it's why I think I don't really think of them sometimes maybe as an investment. I think I tell myself the investment thing as a sort of a, it's totally fine to buy this camera. It's an investment, but when I know full well, it will never go anywhere. You know, <laughs> I, I am probably unlikely to ever part with them. So, Yeah. I, I understand. I understand. And uh, I appreciate your candor 
And um, this has been a most fascinating um, discussion. Um, I I think uh, the direction that you're heading in is um, so um, sort of profoundly interesting in the way that you approach collecting. And I'm so glad that I got a chance to speak with you um, today and that you were kind enough to give us your perspective on this um, really interesting and um, provocative approach to um, acquisition and just maintaining your collection. Um, I urge uh, everybody listening to um, get right on over, browse right on over to uh, analogarchivist.com. Uh, and read that uh, most recent post, read all the posts. Um, but this, uh, the most recent one is is just so interesting in the direction that it takes you. Uh, you can't possibly imagine um, what, what, um, what Lisa has uncovered when uh, she began to do her, her, her dive into um, the research uh, behind the gentleman who owned this camera. So uh, really, really something special there. I appreciate that. And thank you for speaking with us today. Um, it has been a joy uh, hearing about your perspective. And um, uh, as I said, um, you know, I hope that um, there are many fascinating and wonderful cameras in your future. I'm sure there will be. And um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you on the ephemeral machine. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's been a real honor, um, particularly when I look at the the guests who have come before me, um, I feel I'm in esteemed company. So no, thank you very, very much for reaching out. It's been great. Well, I appreciate your time. And um, as I said, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we look forward to hearing uh, more from you in the future, certainly. And uh, we will uh, be back with more from the ephemeral machine. back and you're listening to the ephemeral machine a podcast about collecting cameras and i want to thank my guest lisa murphy for spending some time this episode chatting about camera collecting and her perspective on research provenance and the camera as historical icon it was so refreshing to discuss her process and revel in the result of her focused and detailed journey i urge you to visit lisa's blog analogarchivist.com and follow along as she approaches photography and collecting with sophistication, candor, and clarity. I feel that her presence on the ephemeral machine has helped me to strengthen my admiration for the film camera as a representation of history and design. As I sign off, I can't help but to once again consider the power of communication and the virtual thread which ties us together as a community. My fortunate connection with Lisa Murphy was built upon coincidence. A momentary acknowledgement and reading of an email received has led me down a path which provided access to her and ultimately this profound and in-depth interview. And I think that I as host and the podcast in general are better for it. I look forward in earnest to Lisa's future contributions. Thank you for joining me on my own journey into the world of camera collecting and I will see you again for the next episode of The Ephemeral Machine. <laughs>